You. No. Um, right. Nick Durst here with Joe Calabrese and Joe, our guest today. It was great the way that we ended up getting him on the show. It all, it all came from one of our, our tweeted videos for one of our social clip exclusives. And by the way, if you're not checking those out, you got to be following us on Twitter at Nick underscore Durst at J Calabrese one. So Joe, why don't you give everybody some backstory here on how we ended up getting our awesome guest here today. Well, we had SNY's Janine Coakley on, and she was wonderful. And uh, we ended up doing the interview with her, and she spoke very, very highly of our guest uh, today. He's a sports anchor and broadcaster, uh, and he's bounced around, and he's worked in some of the most important and biggest media markets in the country. Uh, but he has been here in New York for the better part of the last 15 years, I believe. So uh, we're very excited to have him on. Uh, currently works at CBS2 here in New York, Steve Overmeyer. Steve, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Nick, Joe, nice, nice seeing you guys. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to this. No doubt about it. We're, we're glad you're here. So let's, let's get right into it. Dig in here, your little origin story. Did you always know you wanted to pursue a career in sports broadcasting? And how much did that impact your decision on where you decided to go to college? Well, yeah, I think I always knew, I guess, since I was 15, my high school, Hunnick North High School in Indiana, offered a radio program. And I thought this is a perfect opportunity to just try something new. And for me, it was, I was very shy when I was a freshman and sophomore in high school, as most of us, we're all very, you know, um, you know, I guess, withdrawn, more of a wallflower. But when I got behind the microphone at our local radio station, it was almost like you could be a different personality and that, you know, that, that, that shine could, uh, could be found. And, and that's when I thought that that's when I knew that I wanted to do broadcasting. It was almost like the light, you know, flipped on for me. And I was always a sports fan. I was an athlete when I was in high school. So to do, to marry the two broadcasting and sports seemed like a perfect marriage. Uh, so I became the play-by-play -play guy for uh, the basketball team. I started uh, doing the broadcast for uh, our local high school uh, program. And so I was really a broadcaster before I even went to college. And by the time I got to college, I had so much experience that college was almost like a springboard that just boosted me, you know, um, into this career. Uh, I, I didn't learn how to be a broadcaster in college. It was, it was something that was just kind of uh, pushing it forward more or less. And at that point, you know, absolutely. It was, it was full bore. So you're going to have to forgive me because I do not know how to pronounce the name of the college that you went to, but it seems like it's a very small school in Indiana. Yes. So <laughs> Vincennes uh, university, Vincennes university. There you go. Vincent. Uh, so my question, very small school. You did go there for journalism. Uh, how was it in, in regard to internships? What kind of work were you doing when you were in school? And uh, were you able to find connections uh, when you were there that ultimately helped you post-graduation? 
I mean, that was it. It was about the experience. You're, you're absolutely right. I did free internships where I didn't get paid, but I was working tons of hours just because I wanted the experience. The payment was the experience. I know that that sounds like a little bit of a cliche right now and a little bit of a fallback, but that is the victory. That's how you take that first step. It's proving to the people that you're working with that you can do the job, that you can learn, that you can try something different. It's proving to the decision makers uh, that you're a good employee, that you can work with with others very well, that you can take criticism and you can uh, help propel yourself forward and create a different product. It's internship is not about getting paid. It's about uh, a kind of a proving ground for yourself. So yeah, when I was in college, I had an internship at the college radio station. Again, it was you know, it wasn't even for class credit. We didn't get paid for it, but it, it showed me how to run the board. It showed me how to time out, you know, the breaks. Um, all of the little um, intricacies that you need to be a radio broadcaster. And then when you become a play-by-play -play broadcaster, I mean, it's the more reps you get in anything, the better you are going to become. I think Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book about the 10,000 hour rule that you would find your peak performance if you, would, if you uh, work at it for 10,000 hours. And that's true. You have to put the time into something to, to I guess, find your voice, to find your path, if you will. And I found that when I was in college through the internships. I had an internship at WTHI in Terre Haute, Indiana. I was working at the radio station there doing overnights for a country radio station. And during the day, I would get a couple of hours sleep. And during the day, then I would go into uh, the sports office at Channel 10, the CBS affiliate in Terre Haute, and learn how to edit tapes, to learn how to ask the right kind of questions, to learn how to write a script in a condensed form. I mean, that's another thing that most people don't think is very difficult, but you're taking a story that is, you know, a 1200 word story in a local newspaper, and you've got to reduce it down to three sentences in the most uh, convenient, most efficient way possible. That's not an easy job. So to be able to do that is a craft that you have to learn. And that comes with time. It's not just taking the first sentence, a middle sentence and the final sentence. It's about understanding the story, turning it into a cohesive story in as few words as possible. And the more you do that, uh, whether it's in an internship or if you don't have an internship and you're trying it out on your own, just write your own scripts, just give it a shot, compare it then to what you're seeing on the local broadcast or anybody that you find uh, could be an inspiration for you as a broadcaster, mimic what they do, break down what they do. Uh, and the more you can identify the differences between them and other people, the more you can maybe help steer yourself in a direction that you want to go. Steve, your, your energy is just off the charts right now. I love it. <laughs> well, I'm excited when I hear people that want to learn. We want to and learn. So, we want to so learn. Do want to learn. You know, That's I, I really, really good practical advice, too. There's something in the water in Terre Haute, Indiana, with guys named Steve. You and Steve Weatherford, the two top Steve oh, in Indiana. I know, right? <laughs> Weatherford is great, man, you know, and that's the thing is, you know, if, if you stood Weatherford and I side by side, our silhouettes would look almost identical. I can tell you that right now. I'm joking. The guy is 6'4", and he, he weighs 220 and has a body mass index of like 3% body fat. I mean, the guy has been on the cover of Muscle and Fitness. Uh, Weatherford is a good friend. I love Steve, and he does, you know, such a great job of promoting uh, uh, fitness and trying to make it easy to achieve and you know hey he's helped me out a little bit <laughs> he's he's tremendous uh, yeah, he's awesome guy. champion guy guy's a legend in new york so <laughs> yeah he is
The guys from Indiana <laughs> make it big in New York. I mean, think about it. How many punters look like that in the NFL? Yeah. I mean, I think you could arguably say he's the most famous punter right. in league history. So it could be absolutely no Tom Tupa on that list, huh? <laughs> so talk to us about right after college. You know, what are you doing? Did you put some tapes together? Were you sending those out? And how did you ultimately get your first job post-college? Oh, wow, man. That was a funny story because I had been sending out my tapes. It was a shotgun method. I'm sending it out to everybody that's everybody. I mean, jobs that I would have no business, you know, getting. Miami is a top 15 job. I sent a tape to Miami. I'm sending a tape to New Orleans. You know, I sent a tape to what I thought was within the realm of possibility, Evansville, Indiana, which was market 90. And I, about a week later, I get the tape back in the mail with a handwritten letter from the news director of this station in Evansville, who said, I'm returning your tape because it was the worst tape I've ever seen. You have no business being in this career or you have no, no business do, doing broadcasting. And I want to return your tape to you so that it doesn't infect our other tapes. It was ruthless. It was absolutely ruthless. Um, but I kept sending out tapes and I ended up getting a job in Tupelo, Mississippi and uh, had my stuff shipped out there. And I, I started my drive, a six hour drive to Tupelo from Terre Haute to Tupelo. Um, and I remembered that I left something on the counter at the apartment, my roommate was still staying there. So I go back to pick it up, the phone rings and it's the news director in Fort Myers, Florida. And she asked me, have you signed the contract in Mississippi? I, no, I haven't. I was gonna do that when I get down there. She says, what's the local Kinko's? I'm going to fax you a contract right now. This was 1994, by the way, when there was when fax machines was literally the only way you could get a, uh, you could transport information like that. So I go pick it up, sign it, send it off to her. We get this all figured out. I'm, now I have to reroute my truck from Tennessee or should say from Mississippi to Fort Myers. And I had to call the news director and tell him, uh, unfortunately, I'm not gonna be working there tomorrow. I just got a job in Fort Myers, Florida. So sometimes it's the craziest things that, you know, that can, that can happen for you. And if I had not remembered that I left a remote control on the counter, I probably wouldn't have been back there to get that call from what ended up being my first job in the business. Wow. Incredible, incredible story there. Just that's how things break sometimes. Now. That's fate. That's fate if I've ever heard it, to be honest. Right? It is. Yeah. It's, just, it's just a break for you. And, then the, and if I remember right, the first week that I was there, I was the weekend sports anchor. The main guy, and I won't say his name, uh, asked me how much I was making. I told him, I'm making $23,000 a year. I was proud of that. I mean, this is the first time I was able to make more than $20,000 a year and not work three jobs. It, it, it's, it's a tough living when you first start things out. He goes, you're only making $23,000. you are making $23,000. That's only $3,000 less than what I'm making. He storms into the news director's office, demands a raise. <laughs> Next thing I know, I get an, uh, or, he, or he quits. Next thing I know, there's a knock on the door and it's the news director. And she says, well, I don't know if this was your intention or not, but congratulations, you're now sports director. <laughs> nice. Wow. Lucky break. Two lucky breaks in a matter of a week. <laughs> I don't know, Joe, maybe you should tell uh, your boss what you're making. Maybe you can get a promotion. <laughs> yeah, sounds like a good idea. As long as it's north of 23, the other guy's not making 26. I think you'll be good. 
So Steve, how did you how did you adjust to Florida? Obviously, a little colder where you where you coming from growing up, and now you're going down to the heat down in Florida. Yeah, I mean that was a little bit of adjustment, but I loved it. I mean, I think everybody thinks that humidity is something to hate, but I felt great in Florida. I mean, especially that first winter and I didn't have to break out the snow boots or anything. You know, uh, I spent four years in Fort Myers and, you know, that was the station that taught me um, what it means to have a strong work ethic. We were two and a half hours away from Tampa, two and a half away, uh, two and a half away from Miami, another four hours from uh, Tallahassee or six hours from Tallahassee. So we had to cover the entire state's uh, teams and you know, this wasn't at a, a time where you're taking in feeds. This is in the 1990s where you actually physically had to go there. So we were constantly on the road to go to a Dolphins game or a Bucks game or a Seminoles game or a Gators game to cover those games. And those games were being covered. We did that on our weekends. You know, I anchored the shows Monday through Friday. Saturdays, I would go to a Gators or a Hurricanes game. And Sunday, I would go to a Bucks or a Dolphins game during the football season. It was it was that journey of working seven days a week that kind of taught you the work ethic that you need to be a survivor in this business. Um, it's not just doing the bare minimum. You have to do more than what is asked by at least 10%. You have to push yourself and, and, and try to make the product as, uh, you know, 10% better every time you go out. Otherwise, you know, you're just plateauing. So you're doing a lot there in Florida, like you mentioned, not really close to any of the action. So you got to probably in the car a lot. Uh, you're enjoying those winters, but you, you just couldn't get enough for the heat. And you said, let me go out to the desert now. <laughs> go out to Phoenix. What was, right. that, what was that process like for you to get that role and have to make that jump? Well, you know, they say it's a dry heat, but out in Phoenix, 114 is 114. It doesn't matter. You are, you're sweltering. I mean, there's a, there's a four hour window from about 10 o'clock until two o'clock where you're literally not supposed to be working outside, you know, but the, the time that I had in Phoenix was, was great. I think I, I made some of my closest friendships in this business out in Phoenix. Um, you know, uh, Mark Lewis, Mark Curtis, uh, Bruce Cooper, the guys that I work with there. I mean, we were an absolute cohesive unit. That was, that's the best part about this business is that when you get to, when you're kind of in the foxhole with someone, I mean, this business is about managing your time, managing stress, doing the work, creating something new every single day. I mean, that is a stressful environment to be in. So when you have that and you're, you're kind of in the foxhole again with those guys, you know, it creates a, a bond that you, that you'll never forget. And, and that's what I take from, from my time at Phoenix is the bonds that I made with everybody that I worked with out there. It was great. And, and of course it. I did a show. Oh my gosh. I forgot. I did this show called sun's jam session and sun's jam session was a weekly wrap up of what happened with the Phoenix suns that week. Well, I would always have to do a one-on-one -on -one interview with the player. And it, they didn't want me to sit down. They always wanted me to stand up and do this interview. I'm 5'8", and week in and week out, they would give me either Tom Gugliotta, 6'11", or Luke Longley, 7'2". My entire interview was shot like this, with me looking straight up at the guy. And I think that the Suns really got a, a, a little laugh out of that every week. I purposely did that to you. Yes. You know, at some point I was thinking about grabbing a stepladder and just standing <laughs> next to him and having them zoom in and having people wondering whether or not I grew 
a foot and a half. Bad idea. <laughs> you also had the unique uh, experience there while you're in Arizona and a major league baseball team is founded and launched. Yeah. What do you remember about the first season and the hype around the Diamondbacks? Oh, I mean, the hype was real. I mean, we were out there every single day uh, turning a package for a five o'clock, uh, a new live and a new pack for six o'clock and then 10 o'clock. Uh, that was that was such a memorable time. And I remember that first year, the Diamondbacks were terrible. I mean, absolutely horrendous. Um, and then they got Schilling and then they got Randy Johnson. And by the way, I was on the field when Randy Johnson hit that bird. Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was, I was down there covering it. (laughs) Yes. As a matter of fact, and, uh, the, uh, I ended up going up to the catcher afterwards because Randy Johnson was not pleased about this. I think he was, he was pretty upset. He was broken up about it. He didn't want to talk about it. He did not think it was funny, uh, whatsoever. Uh, so afterwards, really the only guy that I could talk to about it was the catcher and what he saw. And, Randy had come over and his locker was right by him. And I, I, I asked the catcher, I said, so can you tell us what it sounds like when doves cry? And Randy shot me a look. <laughs> he had fire in his eyes. He had smoke coming out of his ears and he grabbed his stuff and he just walked off and stormed off. I thought it was one of the funnier things. I know it's not funny that obviously the bird, you know, died, but it was such a random thing to see Randy Johnson blow up a bird. And by the way, when you saw it, in the video, it looks like he explodes the bird. That's not what happened. What actually happened was he knocked the bird out of the, out of the shot. You know, uh, when you saw it in person, it just looked like he just knocked the bird down. But when you see the video of it, all that's left there are the feathers. So it looks like he just exploded the thing. That was one of the, like, the, the most strange moments in baseball that you always hear about. Like the chances of hitting a bird, probably as good as winning the lottery or getting struck by light. Well, with the pigeons that were flying around down there in, uh, in Tucson, um, they ended up getting a little bit too close, I think. So you're, so you're there, you're, you know, you're, you've been in the local markets for about seven years of your career, and now you get the opportunity to kind of go national. Uh, how did the, the opportunity for you with CNN come about? Well, that was uh, another strange one, more or less. Um, it actually... I had actually uh, gone to interview at CNN uh, September 8th of 2001. And I think it was September 8th, September 7th. It was the Friday before September 11th. I went to interview with them. The interview went great. I expected to get a call back from them. Um, And then September 11th happened and CNN went, you know, obviously on a hiring freeze for a little while, but amazingly within a week after that, I literally did get the call uh, to go to CNN. I was just so surprised that that, you know, that that door opened up in the middle of what was, you know, the craziest time in, you know, one of the craziest times in American history. But um, when I went to CNN, they were at the end of what I didn't know was the end of the CNN SI channel. Uh, CNN SI used to compete with ESPN more or less for news and information, but, uh, but exclusively a, a sports channel. And it really wasn't for more than just a couple of months that I was there before they did away with, uh, you know, CNN SI and, uh, and I went exclusively to CNN headline news. And um, I mean, I just thought that was such a, a memorable time because we, it, it taught me, we had to do the same stories 
in the headline news, you're, you're, what you have to do is you have to take essentially the same three stories and rewrite it three different ways every hour. And it taught me to be a better writer. It taught me to stretch my, uh, uh, my abilities and try to find different angles on stories, trying to figure out what's the most interesting, what should people take away from this? Um, you know, that, that element of, of broadcasting, I really felt like I honed when I was there at CNN. And what was the, the biggest difference for you in, you know, covering or reporting on news because you're doing local sports, you're so engraved on the day-to-day, and out here, just reporting on really big stories. Yeah, perspective, I think, was the big difference because when you are down in the middle of it, it's almost like you are, you're the first, you're at the front lines of the information. I'm talking to the players as the information is coming in, and then I'm the one that is almost the gatekeeper for the information. When uh, you're at a network, you are, you're looking at a story from, the 50,000 foot level. You're looking at it from the outside. So you're only taking information from those people that are on the ground floor and are doing the work and are doing, are getting the, uh, the sound bites and, you know, telling the story that needs to be told. So it was really more about being an aggregator of information as opposed to being uh, the one that creates it. It was really more about trying to find the most important element of the story and making sure that gets shared with everybody because you're no longer just talking to an Atlanta Falcons fan. You're no longer just talking to a Knicks fan. You're talking to an entire sports audience. You need to make it relative to everybody. And that's where the perspective comes in. You made a good point before about the uh, Sienna and SI. I think a lot of people tend to forget that that was a thing, uh, especially before 9-11. But when you were in CNN and Atlanta, you also hosted uh, Sunday Night Blitz. Uh, won an award for that show. So talk about how uh, that opportunity came about and who you were working with there. Oh my gosh. That was, that was the fastest five minutes in sports. That, before that was even a phrase. We did, now imagine, you know, 15 games that are being played on a Sunday and you had to wrap those all up in a 10 second clip or essentially 10 to 20 second clip at most each one of these games. You have to tell, you know, who had the most uh, yards, who won the game, what was the most important play. Um, I remember when we were taping those, I never took a breath. It was almost like, you know, beforehand, it was, it was like you're amping yourself up. It was like a scene from, you know, Friday Night Blues where you have to amp yourself up by drinking tons of water, making sure that you're completely hydrated because when those highlights started rolling, those highlights, by the way, were on one tape. It wasn't like there was a director that was popping in tape after tape after tape. As soon as I get to a point in the script, that script had to match perfectly with the video. And if you got behind on one, now you're talking about the Bucks when there's highlights of the Patriots and the Jets playing. So you have to be on it. It taught me that, you know, when the train is going down the tracks, you just got to hang on sometimes and keep flowing with it. And if you lose your place in the middle of that script that you work so hard at creating, find a common term, find something that centers you, even if it is the final score, and then get yourself back on pace. But uh, understand that in, in broadcasting, there is, there's no stopping down and starting again. This is live. You know, you're, you're, uh, you, either, you either ride that train or uh, it's a train wreck. <laughs> That's the beauty of live TV, baby. Uh, <laughs> so 
COVID-19 is still around, but that doesn't mean the Army ROTC programs are not there for you. Earn scholarships for school and pursue the career you want. The leadership-developing Army ROTC classes will give any full-time student the focus and resources that can open doors down the road. Start sharpening the skills that will carve out your future today. Learn how at GoArmy.com ROTC. Army ROTC, now accepting college scholarship applications. Visit GoArmy.com money for college. Every day, thousands of hackers try to steal your crypto. But Arculus uses air-gapped technology by forming a protective barrier that insulates you from hackers and secures your crypto. Order yours at GetArculus.com. Uh, by this point, I, obviously, you've bounced around a couple of major media markets, but uh, this is a question that Nick and I always like to ask uh, our guests, uh, and it revolves around the agent. Uh, did you have an agent uh, at any point up until you got to, to CNN? Because obviously CNN being the, the, the type of major global company it is, uh, I guess you would expect maybe uh, somebody else to help create that opportunity for you. So uh, have you ever had an agent? Uh, and do you think uh, it is a necessity? Um, a necessity, no. Um, recommended, yes. I did have an agent, uh, Matthew Kingsley was awesome. The best part about having an agent is they're your cheerleader and they're handling the awkward moments that you don't really necessarily want to be associated with. Do you really want to be sitting in there like Dylan Batanza sitting across from Randy Levine hearing all the bad things about him in an arbitration hearing? Do you want to sit across your boss and have him argue why you shouldn't be paid what you're being paid. How is that, you know, the anxiety of that, I, I, I wouldn't want anything to do with. And at the same time, to have an agent, it's really about the work that they're doing before it even gets to the talks. It's about the conversations that they're having with the news directors, the talent coordinators, the decision makers, uh, finding out the type of person they want, helping steer you possibly in that direction. Because, you know, uh, an agent isn't just uh, someone that's handling the, 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 the business aspect of it, you know, they're also coaching you a little bit too. You know, they're also your sounding board for what is normal in this town. What should I expect when I, you know, um, you know, talk with these people um, to have that extra voice is invaluable uh, when it comes to your negotiating stance. Because once the deal is done, and the deal will always get done because it at some point, everybody's going to come to an agreement. Once the deal is done, now you and your new boss will meet each other with a, a handshake and happiness and not this discomfort that is sitting in the pit of your stomach from that, uh, you know, that awkward uh, request for money. But um, that being said, I don't have an agent now in that I've been staying at CBS now for the past 11 years. Um, I didn't feel, I didn't want to go anywhere else, you know, um, an agent to me was great to, to help catapult me, uh, to the number one market in the nation. And Matthew is still a, a great friend. Um, uh, but at some point, you know, where you want to be, you know, the team you want to be on. And, um, when you find that team, you don't want to go anywhere else. Yeah. And, <laughs> and you know, you get, you get to New York. You join this new network is launching. Yeah, SNY. You're you're there. You're one of the originals. Some great people there at the time. Chris Cotter, 
Matt Yadloff, you know, the original guys there later on, you know, Jonas comes in and Gary Apple and Joe Beningo. So, you know, magic going on right there in that early, <laughs> those, those early years of SNY. How did that opportunity come about for you? And you know, how, how, how different was it for you being at a network that is just launching? That was, that was a tremendous time. I mean, talk about, you know, I'd only been to New York one other time before flying to New York for this, you know, this job interview at SNY. And I thought that I completely flubbed it. It was with Kurt Gowdy Jr. And I, I felt like I made a complete and total idiot out of myself. And I can't believe that he actually called me back. But he, something in the tape must have been there because I don't think it happened in the interview. So maybe that's another lesson, too, is that sometimes when you think that you have the worst interview, um, you know, that maybe that shows a vulnerability in you that, uh, uh, that the, the new boss uh, can really appreciate. But, but, yeah, when we first started at S&Y, uh, that was a wild time. You know, I mean, we were all in New York City for the first time. We were all acclimating ourselves uh, to New York and all getting to know one another. Uh, and there were some great broadcasters on there as well. Steve Berth Hume, still one of the best broadcasters uh, in America. I mean, he did such a fantastic job, um, you know, and I, I think SNY really missed him when he left, along with Matt Yaloff on the postgame show was tremendous. You know, he brought up great points. Um, he was clearly such, um, I, I, I guess, such a fan of the sport and, um, you know, understood the science of the sport. He used to ask such, you know, wonderful questions. And then uh, Chris Cotter, as you said <laughs> early on, even before Kevin Burkhart, who's amazing. Uh, the, the original. Uh, you know, well, yeah. it was actually Siafa Lewis was the original for the first couple of weeks. A little known fact, he used to be the, uh, the Mets beat reporter before Chris Cotter ended up taking over in the first, uh, the first season. But Cotter was... Um, Honestly, Cotter's, Cotter's fantastic. I, I just, I, I miss all those guys at SNY. I wish we could have kept that team together. Did yeah. you recommend Steve for the Diamondbacks job? <laughs> yeah, you know, you would think, right? It seems like that, uh, that connection would have been there, but uh, you know, no, hey, if that was the case, I, I, I might've gone out there with him. I, I, you know, Phoenix was a good town to be in. You know, I, I know him and uh, I think Cindy is out there. His wife, I think is working at the Fox Regional, um, you know, broadcast center out there as well. So. You know, that's a, it's not a bad place to be if you can yeah. stand the 114 degree heat. Yadloff, totally underutilized right Absolutely. now. I don't think it's, it's a real shame. Cotter, I mean, I've heard of him say this on the air before. Basically, they're like, hey, you're going to start being with the Mets starting tomorrow. You're going to be on the road with them. Tough job. Um, <laughs> he was then great in the studio. Then Kevin Burkhart, did you, did you know, I mean, I don't know, maybe you didn't interact with him too much because he's at the stadium, but did you have a feeling, wow, this guy's going to be one of the biggest stars in, in sports media? I didn't expect, well, I'm not surprised that he is because from the first day that I saw him on the air, he was one of the most genuine, comfortable um, uh, personas that you would see on the air. And, and that guy was the guy that you would see on the air. The real Kevin Burkhardt is the guy that you, uh, that you see on TV. He's just an easy to get along with, um, quite witty, quite intelligent, uh, very, um, you know, I, I guess personality driven kind of a guy. And that works. It works on TV. It doesn't matter what that job is. It doesn't matter if you're sidelines for the New York Mets or if you're in the studio for a local TV station in Billings, Montana, you know, if you have that X factor, if you have that ability to connect with people and to come through the camera, like 
Kevin Burkhardt is one of those guys that kind of comes through the camera very well. Um, that's where you're going to find success. So uh, just find your own inner comfort, comfort level. And I think that you'll find the best in yourself when you put it on the air. So you're, you're there, you're doing a lot, you're doing a lot of jet stuff. What do you remember most about those wild times with the Jets, Tannenbaum, Rex Ryan, just a bunch of characters, really? Oh, it definitely was. You know, we had, uh, we had such a great time, I felt like, back then. I mean, and, I, and it was, I guess it was at the beginning of the Twitter age. So the, the players weren't as fearful of the, uh, of the media as they once were, you know, we'd ride the plane with the guys. We'd get to, I'd get to know the guys uh, very well. There were a couple of guys on the team that, you know, always seemed to be getting into fights. And after one of the games, you know, we were just kind of standing around on the, on the plane flying back. And I'm like, why? I want to say the guy's name, but why are you always getting into a fight? It doesn't matter if it's a punt, punt play, a kick play, kickoff, or if you're just out there on the field during a regular play, why are you always getting into a fight? <laughs> he said, well, that's the only way that I can raise my level to the athleticism that's out here on the field is to push yourself and get into a fight. And that, I mean, there are certain things like that that you would never hear if you're doing an interview one-on-one. -on -one. And I never said that guy's name, never put it out over the air, but it's those little details that can help you gauge the personality of the people that you're speaking with. It can help you understand uh, the guys that you're chatting with. And, you know, and it was easy, you know, back in the day that we would go out on the city and sometimes I would run into the players. I never went out with the players, but while I was out in the city back then, sometimes we'd run into the players and, you know, it was a good time. <laughs> yes. Who were some of your favorite players to interview? Oh man. Okay, in Phoenix, it would easily be a guy that I still speak with today, uh, defensive end Simeon Rice. That man, just the analogies that he would bring, the, his vocabulary was so strong. He just, he was such a thoughtful individual. You could ask the simplest question about why the 4-3 defense uh, works better against the screens. And he would go into some, you know, uh, interesting example of, you know, mixing primordial soup together back in the dinosaur age to create this awesome story as to why, you know, that particular defensive scheme would work with a certain play. Um, he was just such a great storyteller. I loved Simeon Rice uh, back in, in Phoenix. And I think, you know, I think any town you go to and you get to know a guy, um, I got to know Mark Sanchez pretty good. I, I, I know he gets blasted, but I tell you what, that man led the Jets to two AFC championship games. And he was a very good player for the Jets for a while. And I, I loved chatting with him because he was one of those guys that when all the stuff was being thrown at him, I felt like he would let it roll off of his shoulders and not let it get to him. And I think that that's the biggest and the toughest thing to do when you're here in the number one market. Um, you know, Eli Manning was great at that as well. He wouldn't even address it. You know, there are some guys who absorb that let that eat them up but um but when you meet somebody that has that ability to to show you how to uh i, I guess knock it away and deflect it then uh, those are the kind of people that i feel like can stick with you a little bit longer so you mentioned before you joined cbs in 2011 and you have been there ever since uh so i i watch you all the time uh we watch cbs too in this house so uh Great, great work there. Uh, so who was the, who was responsible for bringing you over there? Uh, and how did that come about? Well, uh, it's uh, Chris Gaglioni, the executive producer at uh, WCBS. Um, 
he would uh, routinely be in the field in the Jets locker rooms or the Mets uh, clubhouse um, or the Knicks locker room. And occasionally I would see Skaggs when I would be working at SNY. And it would be simple things like he can't get his microphone in because there's a scrum of media, you know, bombarding, um, you know, whoever we're talking to. And he'd pass me his microphone and I would hold his microphone. I would hold his microphone. I would hold the microphone from the guys at Fox, from ESPN. Anybody that couldn't get their microphone close, you're, of course, you're right there. You're going to be helping him out. That little thing helped Skaggs come to the decision to call me when they needed a freelancer uh, back in 2010, it was, I think it was when they first uh, asked me to start freelancing. It was just knowing that I was helpful as a non-employee to everybody else made him, um, I guess, suggest me to the, uh, to the big boss. And um, once they put me on the air, then I guess, I guess I'm like Pete Rose, you know, once you get me in there, man, you can't get me out. You're going to have to kick me out of there. <laughs> I'm sticky that way, I guess. <laughs> or a survivor. I don't know how you would put it. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, and you've, you've had some, you know, in the time at CBS, there's been some interesting sports moments. Obviously, you had the, the Giants Super Bowl, uh, which, which was probably a big, big thing to yeah. cover there. Uh, baseball's been kind of up and down. Obviously, the, the Mets had a 2015 run. Uh Knicks have been horrible. Rangers went to the Stanley Cup. So what are your, what's some of your, your favorite memories covering local New York sports, even dating back to your SNY days? Okay, well, favorite memory, tops of all time, 2007 Super Bowl uh, in Phoenix. We were underneath the stadium because at the time with two minutes left to go in the game, they hoard all of the media underneath the uh, uh, the stadium so that when the game is over, they open up the gates and the media go flooding out on the field to talk with the players as the confetti comes down and, you know, the season is over, the champion is made. So we're all underneath the stadium watching on this little 15-inch monitor. There are about 300 media people watching this little 15-inch monitor and we hear the roar of the crowd, but the monitor is on like about a five-second delay. So... When we hear the roar of the crowd, it's when Eli has been grabbed from behind and it looks like Eli's getting sacked and there it is. The Patriots go undefeated. They become the first undefeated team to win the Super Bowl. The Giants season is over. Great, this is gonna be a horrible night. And then all of a sudden he scrambles out of it and throws the ball. And obviously I'm watching this on this 15 inch monitor. I can't believe what I'm seeing. I, we had to watch the replay multiple times to see he literally caught that off of his head. I mean, the entire place went bananas. It was, it was crazy, you know, because I mean, you're talking to a bunch of media that there were certainly media from the Boston area, but a majority of the media didn't want the Patriots to win. <laughs> so there were a lot of cheers uh, underneath the stadium that day. So that one was another, I mean, the Giants gave us another fantastic one when in the, what was the temperature of that one in Lambeau was like 16 degrees below zero. Yeah. You know, they say that media aren't allowed to cheer, but the Green Bay media, they're maybe not, they're cut from a different cloth because those guys were cheering the entire time. And when, uh, when the field goal went through, I think it was a field goal that ended up winning the game. Uh, you could hear the New York media belted one out just to remind them that 
They were Steve, you were at Lambo for that. You were at Lambo for that game. Oh yeah. So were you yeah. just were you just like pounding hot chocolates and coffees? And <laughs> oh my time? gosh. What are you doing to stay warm? Oh, and of course, everybody wants you to go live for every minute, but leading up to that game. So we were standing out there for a good three hours before the game began to do the live shots and to do interviews. I mean, I thought my eyeball juice had frozen over. That's how cold it was. I mean, we were, we had those heat warming pads. I was stuffing them into my fingers, into my, uh, into my boots. Uh, I was doing like double duty on those things and still going inside to the trailer. We had like a little TV trailer that was a satellite trailer that could fit the satellite operator and basically that's it. And we would cram like three or four people in there for five minutes at a time, just to, just to get yourself a nice little breath of, at the very least, warm up your lungs before you stepped outside again. So yeah, that was a, and the people in Lambo, people in Green Bay, that was like normal for them. People, I, there was one guy wearing shorts that day. I couldn't believe how idiotic that was. And I thought that Tom Coughlin was gonna die that day because of the, his cheeks <laughs> were so red. So you obviously, covered your fair share of games you've been to the stadiums i gotta ask what is your go-to meal or snack during the game in the press box Mm, that's a good one that's a good one because it's always different with the jets or a giants game it's always going to be a different uh something different in there i would say after the sixth inning at a mets or yankees game it's just the hot dog (laughs) <laughs> I'm, just, I'm a I'm an old-fashioned kind of a meats a meats guy. So when they start putting the hot dogs out late in the ga- late in the game, I can't resist. Uh, you know, uh, not as much on the ice cream or the frogert or anything like that. But you put that extra hot dog out there, that's going to go down like Joey Chestnut. <laughs> Last question here, and then we're going to let you go. Uh, I see the Colts helmet in the background, but I also see oh. the, the Jets helmet too. Yes. Uh, yes. So growing up in Indiana, I assume you would be a Colts fan, correct? I was. I was a Colts fan when they came over in 1984, back when Mike Pagel was the quarterback of the team. I mean, Alvin, you know, uh, Albert, Albert Bentley, number 20, was the running back. Dwayne Bickett, uh, Goodrich. I mean, just the Colts were the team that you identified with because it was the first I know that the Pacers were in Indiana, but, it, you know, I was a, such a huge football fan that when the Colts came in 1984, that was my identity right there. It's my football team that's going to be representing me from now, um, you know, for the rest of my life. And that helmet you asked about CNN, uh, that helmet actually came off the CNN SI set when they broke the set down uh, and we're getting ready to throw everything away. I'm like, well, you can't throw these helmets away. Well, we're going to have to. Well, how about you don't throw this Colts helmet away? So that <laughs> helmet is literally from the CNNSI set. <laughs> that's a good, that's really good. Um, so you spent a lot of your life working. How often do you go to games as a fan or, or for, for leisure now? Because, um, you know, spending a lot of your time doing the work, it, it's really hard to find that me downtime. So uh, do you end up going to Colts games when they come and visit here when they're playing in MetLife? You know, do you carve some time out? I don't know if you're a Pacers fan or anything, or you know, do you still like college sports in Indiana? So do you ever find more time to do that for yourself now? I I have only when friends want to go to the games. 
and I'll purchase some tickets to the game. Like if family want to go to a Yankees game, uh, we'll go to a Yankees game together by all means, you know? Um, but I think you're right. I think when you have a career where you're spending every day at the ballpark or at the stadium, it sometimes feels like work if you're going there on your day off, unless you're with family and friends. So when family, so I would say maybe twice a year, we'll get to uh, like maybe a Mets game or a Yankees game. Those are the best ones to go to in my mind because it's much more leisurely. Uh, plus I would never be able to get to a Jets game or a Giants game because I'm anchoring the shows on Sundays or I'm covering the game. So I, I could never imagine myself as uh, you know, unless it's a Monday night football game possibly, but then I'm usually covering that as well. Um, so I can't really see myself going as a fan of the NFL teams, but uh, going to a baseball game, you can just hang out. You don't even, you know, it's, that's what's beautiful about a baseball game is that even uh, family members that aren't into baseball love going to a baseball game. It's about the experience, about the shared experience. And I think that I took that for granted a lot more before the pandemic, uh, understanding how important it is to be in that shared environment with a number of other fans that are cheering for the same thing you're cheering for, that want to see the same thing you want to see. Uh, there's a bonding that goes in with that. And I, you know, I think I, I miss that. I think that, uh, I, I think the pandemic has taught me that going back to the ballpark is something, you know, I want to do more of now. Great point. And it's really nice that we're starting to see stadiums uh, a lot more packed yeah. uh, this summer. So really, really great. Uh, this interview was really, really great, Steve. Thank you for coming on. Uh, we really appreciate it. Great time talking about you and your career. Uh, we usually give our guests here the last words. So uh, if there's anything else you would like to share, if there's anything else you would like to promote, go right ahead. The floor is yours. Oh, thank thanks again you for doing this. Thank you. Well, I would just encourage all to, uh, to go to CBSNewYork.com uh, because I have a series called Snapshot New York. There's in my mind, there's so many bad news stories that we see every time we turn on the TV Sometimes you need an antidote to that. And we started a series a couple of years ago called Snapshot New York, which is ultimately shining a spotlight on people in and around New York that are doing good things. They're either doing it for others, trying to inspire others, um, trying to make the most out of their lives, or they're following their own particular passion. Um, it's a series right now that's about 96 features long, and we're continuing to add to it uh, week in and week out. And uh, I would encourage everyone to go on uh, cbsnewyork.com to look up Snapshot New York and, and take a peek at these little three minute features. We shoot them in, a, in like a documentary style format and, uh, and they're hopefully a little cinematic and hopefully the, the, the audience will get a little something out of it too. Sounds good, everybody. Go check that out. So, Steve, we want to thank you so much. It's been a great time. That's going to do it here for this episode of You Know I'm Right. So, for our very special guest, Steve Overmeyer, and for my co host, Joe Calabrese, I'm Nick Durst, and this has been You Know I'm Right. COVID 19 is still around, but that doesn't mean the Army ROTC programs are not there for you. Earn scholarships for school and pursue the career you want. The leadership-developing Army ROTC classes will give any full-time student the focus and resources that can open doors down the road. Start sharpening the skills that will carve out your future today. Learn how at GoArmy.com ROTC. Army ROTC, now accepting college scholarship applications. Visit GoArmy.com slash money for college.